those of you who are um, somewhat familiar with the teachings of the Buddha will know that the teachings are often presented in the form of lists. You know, six of this and ten of that and three of this and four of these and five of those. And uh, these lists are actually kind of roadmaps. They're, they're ways of bringing together um, a, a range of qualities in different formulas, essentially. And if you're familiar with le- these lists, you will see that you know, many of the qualities are kind of crossover qualities. You'll find them in the sevens, and you'll find them in the fours, and you might find them in the threes. But in a way, this kind of bringing together qualities in this way describes not only a roadmap, but a path. It's almost like you could take any one of those lists and read it as a path that is cultivated that leads to awakening. One of those lists we would like to focus on over the time of this retreat, but it's recognizing there's ten in this list, and we have five evening talks. So uh, this was, is, was and is something of a challenge for us to treat it in enough depth without leaving a lot out. So we're basically going to do our best around that. So to start with, before I start on this list, um, many of you will be familiar with the word bodhisattva. It's a Sanskrit word for one who is both dedicated to awakening and to act for the benefit of all beings. So it's a radical statement, which essentially says that our deepest happiness is connected with the happiness and the freedom of all. Now the ten qualities that are said to kind of make up this path of the bodhisattva that fulfills this aspiration for inner awakening and to live and act for the happiness and well-being of all beings. The fulfillment of this aspiration is through what is called the paramis, or in Sanskrit, the paramitas, qualities that ennoble our hearts and our lives. They're sometimes described as perfections, but they are all, all of these qualities are fruitions of insight. So I want to read to you the basic formula. One longing to live a noble life and liberation of the heart commits himself to the welfare of all living beings, not tolerating the suffering of any living being, dedicated to the enduring happiness of all, and holding all beings equally. They are generous to all, so that they may be happy, not considering whether they are worthy or not. In a commitment to love and non-harming, 
they practice integrity in order to bring integrity to perfection. They train themselves in renunciation. In order to understand what is beneficial and what is harmful, they cultivate wisdom. For the sake of the welfare and happiness of all, they constantly exert energy. Though heroic in their energy, they are nevertheless full of forbearance for the manifest failings of beings. They are truthful. Once they have promised to give or do something, they uphold their commitments. With unshakable resolution, they work for the welfare and happiness of all. With unshakable kindness, they are helpful to all. Pervaded with equanimity, they do not expect anything in return, but live with an unshakable freedom beyond the reach of all conditions. The Buddha described awakening as being the essence and the heart word of a noble life. He said that we do not do this practice or live this life in order to improve ourselves, in order to attain particular states or experiences or concentration, but that we undertake this path for the unshakable liberation of the heart. He spoke of awakening not as an experience, but as a profound and radical understanding that will bring a natural dignity and authenticity and integrity and compassion to our lives. Understanding torment and its causes, knowing the end of torment, experiencing moment to moment the unbinding of the heart, transforming not only our inner world, but indeed the very shape of our life. And when the Buddha suggested and proposed and invited people to explore in their own experience, that in all of the moments when we can bring greed and hatred, delusion to an end, that there is an end in that to confusion and agitation and alienation. And that we can indeed do come to realize in those moments the freedom and the ease and the openness and the creativity that are actually the very hallmarks of an awakened life. This is what we are asked to envisage for ourselves. We may have many stories of unworthiness. We may have many stories of incapacity or impossibility. We may have many stories of doubt about ourselves. But these too are embraced in the path. These too can be liberated. I think for you personally, it's very important that each of us has our own dialogue with awakening, an inner dialogue, to ask ourselves, what, what does that mean to us? 
What does that mean for us? Can we even consider that possibility? Can we and do we really dedicate ourselves to unbinding our hearts? You know, the Buddha placed this possibility of awakening not in some esoteric domain, but in the very classroom of our lives. Everything we experience, everything we feel, all of the narratives we have, all of the images that we hold about ourselves, this is actually where the Buddha put the prospect and the possibility of awakening. This shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us. Because we see how this bears out in our own experience. We see so clearly for ourselves that if we practice confusion, well, it begets more confusion. If we practice ill will, it begets more ill will. We see that if we live a life of fear, without question, then fear will deepen. And that if we practice doubt, it does indeed become the shape of our minds, but I think more lethally, it becomes the shape of our practice. We also see that if we practice kindness, kindness deepens. That if we practice and live in a compassionate way, the compassion also deepens. And I think, you know, there's a question that we bring into our lives as a really present moment question is, what are the ways that we might practice freedom rather than limitation? I feel that we can learn truly to ask really the very same questions that the Buddha asked. And that yoginis through time have asked, what is torment? What is struggle? What is anguish? What are the causes? What are the path to the end? What is peace for us? What is serenity and freedom? And what is the path to realize all of this? Knowing, asking these questions and to really probe them deeply, we do just what we're doing here. We take our seat, we plant our feet on the ground, and we look carefully at our lives. And we cultivate the calm willingness also to look carefully at our own hearts and minds and their ways. Moment to moment, what we do here is we are really learning to be our own healers. To inhabit our own lives with integrity and kindness and investigation. There's a wonderful few lines from the Dhammapada, one of the early texts, many of you will be familiar with. He says, all experience is led by mind, made by mind, preceded by mind. With our thoughts, we make the world. And all that we are arises with our thoughts. This is not so difficult for us to see in our own experience. We see the many, many ways, moment to moment, 
that our, our life actually simply becomes an extension of the state of our mind or the climate of our heart. If we feel very fearful, we will see much threat around us. And we will do our best to strategize and avoid. If we feel very aversive, we are unlikely to look around us and see all these delightful, wonderful women. Instead, if we are feeling very aversive, we will look around us and we will feel ourselves to be surrounded by fools and, you know, mindless people and, you know, how did they ever end up here and what am I doing here? The teaching is so clear, you know, that we, we, none of us have the power to control all the conditions in our lives. That lovely and unlovely people and experience and events will visit us all. The sun might shine, the rain might come. We cannot control this. Our bodies change in sometimes in ways that's hard to accept. We meet moments of disappointment and moments of joy. If you turn to the woman on either side of you and ask, is it so for you, they would most likely say yes. But we are not helpless. Not being in control doesn't mean being out of control. And not being in control does not mean being helpless. There is much that lies in our hands. There's much that lies in our hearts. And what it is that really lies in our hands and lies in our hearts are the changes and the shifts and the transformations in how we embrace all of this, in how we engage with all of this, and how we relate to this only life we can live. The Buddha didn't describe awakening as an accident and certainly didn't describe awakening as a territory reserved for a select minority. We're all qualified. That's good to know. You don't have to earn your place on this path. We have everything that we need to be qualified. We already have a body, a mind, a heart. But this path, of course, is brought to life, is cultivated by, by essentially our willingness, our sincerity, our dedication. In describing the cultivation of, awakened, of an awakened life, the Buddha spoke about four foundations, a different, a different four foundations than you're usually accustomed to hearing from us. The Buddha spoke of four foundations and as if these four foundations are actually the four limbs of one body. He spoke about the foundation of dana, freely giving, sometimes translated as generosity. He spoke about the foundation of sila, or integrity, ethics. He spoke about the foundation of samadhi, the whole spectrum of meditative development and the foundation of panya, which is insight or wisdom. Now, when the Buddha spoke about these four, four foundations, he, he really described them as really like four limbs of one body. 
that they can't be separated. They're not cultivated in separate domains, just as our arm is not separate from the whole of our body. But he described these four foundations as interactive processes, dependent upon and cooperating with one another, relying upon one another, and as being a path to liberation. So these, this evening I, I want to look at these first two limbs, or these first two paramis of dana, freely giving, and sila, of integrity or ethics. What I would really like to say at the onset is that these are not the poor cousins of wisdom. They're not side dishes. They're not kind of something we think about as optional extras. We have a great tendency, I think, in in Western Dharma culture to um, preference formal meditation over and above all things, that that's the real stuff. And yet, actually, the way that the path is presented is really in this fourfold development. As the Buddha put it, for, for meditative understanding, for insight to take root, it's a little bit like a tree growing. That the tree, for the tree to be upright and to grow strongly, its roots need to be deeply planted in fertile soil. And dana and sila are really the soil. It's seen to be the climate, the inner climate, the inner, inner soil, uh, fertile soil in which the seeds of awakening can be planted, in which those seeds can thrive and flourish. Now, dana, in my understanding of it, in its deepest sense, could be described as an act of fearless freedom. Because dana, this capacity for freely giving, is born of a mind and a heart that clings to nothing. It's a natural expression of a heart that is firmly rooted in knowing an inwardly generated sense of sufficiency in which all sense of lack has come to an end. It's very easy to kind of superficialize, I don't even know if that's an English word. It is now. It's very easy to superficialize dana. You walk by the signs here, you walk by the boxes here that talk about dana, and it's very easy to think of dana as a financial transaction. But in its deeper meaning, dana is truly something to do with how we live. It's to do with insight and it's to to do with the practice of freedom. The Buddha essentially taught that to hold on to anything in this life, to cling to anything at all, to be preoccupied with the past, to be invested in the future, to live with a sense of possessiveness around our opinions or our space, to cling to anything as mine, as belonging to me, as to who I am. He said, this is all the activity of suffering. 
that to do venture into any of these territories or to live in such a way is almost like instantly suffering. It's so interesting to me the way sometimes the Buddha talked about this path as a path of freeing ourselves from indebtedness. And the, the metaphor that he used, he said, imagine what it is like, and some of you may have had or may have this experience, of being heavily financially in debt. What it does to the mind. Hmm? The anxiety, the worry, the felt feeling of weight, the feeling of fear. And then he said, imagine what it would be like to be able just to repay that debt. The sense of, of relief. The sense of, of freedom that would come with that. And this is a metaphor that he applies to the whole of the path, that actually this path is about learning to free ourselves of indebtedness, not financial indebtedness, emotional, psychological indebtedness. And actually, if we want to know what we're indebted to, just look at what grabs your attention repeatedly. Look where the mind starts to obsess or to dwell. The places we are indebted are the places we are not at peace with, the places we don't feel free within. And when the, the Buddha speaks about this cultivation of freedom, this freedom from indebtedness, he says this has much to do with learning the art of non-clinging and non-grasping. And this has much to do with what dana really means. Now, this is something not to take as an abstract theory. This is something to really explore energetically in our days. And I don't think we're short of opportunities. To, have, you know, to feel encouraged in our day, to be very mindful of the energetic movement of clinging, the taking hold of something as mine, as what I need, who I am. And to sense the effect in the body. You know, my, my own experience is that clinging and grasping is a very, has a huge impact in the body. You notice that? The feeling of just closing. You know, the, the feeling of tightening. The, the feeling of kind of drawing in you know, of becoming actually smaller. It's really interesting to just trace this in your day. Um, not, without, not with judgment, not, not with condemnation, but with curiosity. But it's also very interesting and very important to trace energetically in our day all of the moments, and actually there are moments, many moments, when non-clinging and non-grasping is happening. We don't go through our day endlessly clinging and grasping. There are many moments, actually, when this is actually not what's occurring, where there's a greater sense of openness, a greater sense of spaciousness, a greater sense of freedom. And it's so important to explore those moments, because what are those moments actually telling us? Well, in those moments, actually, we're not defending anything. We're not afraid of loss. We're not in a state of protecting. 
We're not in a state of feeling I need or I am. Text, textually, it, it, we, we, need to, we need to explore these. The, the difference between these moments in our own experience. Hmm? This path is so much about having that felt sense of exploration, not only being our own healers, but learning from our own experience. Because what we are doing in the practice is inclining our hearts towards non-clinging based upon that understanding. So you can see I have a friend, a, a person I work with, and he, 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 he's a professor in a university, and, and in his department there's two teams, okay? And each team has their own kitchen. And he says, in one kitchen, he says, it's really remarkable. You open the fridge, you know, and everything in it has a sign on it, don't touch. Don't even come here, you know. This is mine, you know. Hands off, you know. And he says it's so interesting because the fridge actually reflects the state of mind of the whole team. He said this is a really unhappy team. You know, they bicker, they fight together, you know, they're very territorial, they're very possessive. He says, the other team, he says, where he fortunately works, people bring cookies, say, help yourself, you know. People take turns bringing milk, bringing tea, you know, they bring offerings. He says, it's also a reflection of the kind of cultural, emotional climate of the team. He says, this is a very happy team. And when he told me this, I thought, it was such a sort of interesting metaphor because, you know, then we ask ourselves, what kitchen do we live in? You know, what is the kitchen that we live in? And also really to have the sense maybe we can choose. Maybe we have some choice about this. Now, moments of closing, moments of opening, they, they seem, don't they seem unpredictable? Often because it just all happens so quickly. What happens so fast? But actually, what, 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 what I think one of the great blessings of this path is, is it takes a sense of bewilderment out of our life. You know, we don't kind of look at those moments of closing and think, oh, how did, how did that happen? We actually start to trace these processes in ourselves, and we know exactly how we ended up there. And that's very important information for us in terms of inner, inner learning. We see moments of opening, and again, we don't think, well, isn't that amazing, you know? How did I end up there? We actually know exactly how that came to be, because this is where we learn that there are choices. So, dana, this quality of freely giving, which is actually the opposite of clinging and grasping, hmm? it's the opposite of clinging and grasping. What is suggested in this, this is, is that this is a pathway this is a practice. This is a way we learn to practice caring for our own well-being, caring for our world. And it's a practice that requires effort and dedication. Again, in the Dhammapada, there's a wonderful saying that says, you know, it's very easy to do things that are harmful to oneself. That it's far more difficult to do things beneficial to oneself.
in cultivating a freely giving heart. We're cultivating a heart without boundaries. This is an act of kindness and compassion for ourselves. It is no surprise then that really the Buddha placed dana as the first pillar, pillar of an awakened life. In fact, he enshrined dana as being the essential foundation of an awakened life. In the early days in the monastic community, through the, the, you know, the, the kind of core rules or ethical guidelines that existed at that time, the Buddha actually ensured that the monastic community lived in a state of dependency upon the lay, lay people. He ensured that they lived in a state of connectedness. So people couldn't just go off, you know, and, and retire from the world and transcend the world. And the basic way that the Buddha ensured this was through the alms round. That, that nuns and monks weren't allowed to store things. So every day they would have to go out on an alms round to receive their food for that day. And this ensured that level of connectedness and this not, not a needy dependency, but actually a very wise dependency to understand that their life needed to recognize interdependence, to understand that their life, their well-being, couldn't be lived separated and apart from the well-being of all around In ensuring this quality uh, that life depended upon dana, upon freely giving, um, you know, the Buddha also said that you know, not only could people not store things, but this had something deeper meaning. It about meant living in a fearless way, not concerned, not worried about what tomorrow might bring not living to avoid uncertainty and trying to ensure certainty. And even today, you know, nuns, monks, they're allowed eight possessions. You know, if you go into the room of a nun, you know, you actually don't find it uh, filled with vacation souvenirs and knickknacks. Recently, I came across one of the bhikkhunis from who lives in California at the airport in London. And she had this little bag. That was her life. That was all her possessions. I must admit, I felt a little humbled, you know, actually slightly embarrassed um, as I checked in my 20-kilo suitcase. And, um, but it's such a, it's a deeper teaching here, you know, that you don't walk into a nun's room and find cupboards of unworn clothes. In fact, wardrobe's not really an issue. Now, all of this, kind of this kind of guidelines for the nuns, it, it wasn't to kind of create a kind of state of deprivation or a feeling of being impoverished. It was actually, it's actually really a profound teaching, something that I admire so much about living with that quality of trust, rooted in the trust in dana. You know, that quality of trust, of their commitment to taking care of the present, their commitment to the truth of uncertainty, and their commitment to the contentment with what is. And it struck me that, that strikes me that this 
this quality, you know, this, this commitment to that contentment with what is, is really a commitment to knowing this, this inwardly generated sense of sufficiency. Can you imagine a greater gift in this life than to feel that everything you need and everything you require is already present within you? That all the happiness you could wish for and all of the peace you could wish for, the seeds of that are already present within you? I can hardly imagine a greater blessing than to know this inwardly generated sense of sufficiency because we, we all see so easily how a sense of lack can drive our lives. Reaching out to the world and searching the corners of the life, of life, trying to find what we don't feel that we have inwardly. Trying to secure things, trying to claim things as mine, defending against loss, fearful of loss. We can tell ourselves a story very often that we don't have enough or that we are not enough. And this, above all, is the story that needs questioning. Now, Donna, freely giving, this is not a noun, this is a verb. We, we learn that we can begin to open. We can pause, we can feel surges of contractedness, and we can begin to learn what it means to incline our hearts towards opening. This is clearly not about opening our wallets. It's about opening our hearts. Countering the withholding mind. Now, dana is not only about how we relate to others and how we relate to the world, but as an insight practice, this path of cultivating the, the generosity, the freely giving heart, is equally concerned with how we relate to ourselves. Are we generous with our appreciation of ourselves? Or do we find ourselves more in the world of blame? Can we be generous in releasing the habits of judgment and condemnation? Can we be generous with inwardly offered kindness and compassion? As with all the noble qualities that are spoken of in this tradition, that there's always a kind of a near enemy, a sort of a shadow, shadow parami, we might say, a shadow perfection. And the near enemy of dana, of dana is, I think, self-sacrificing and self-diminishing. Now, these are tendencies that historically, and perhaps even today, have been very much lauded as being virtues in women. To put others first and to put oneself last. To value the well-being of another as being more important than your own. To protect others, but not to protect ourselves. Now, there are moments in life, of course, when this is totally altruistic and it is totally a genuine and heartfelt act of dana. Sometimes it's not. 
And sometimes it's not almost not wise. Sometimes it's a manifestation of something else. You know, it's, to me, there's this interesting kind of uh, paradigm that, you know, from an evolutionary sense, you know, we as women are actually hardwired to nurture and protect. But that combines with something else which I think is actually more, a more toxic tendency. And in the Buddhist teaching, what that can combine with is what is called mana. Now this is translated often as conceit of self, but that's a very awkward way of seeing it. But mana really describes the way that we place ourselves relationally with others as, in, as either being better than other people or the same as other people, or as somehow being worse than others. Now, this tendency to self-diminish, to devalue inwardly, to see oneself somehow as being less important, less valuable, is actually one of these expressions of mana that combines with this evolutionary hardwiring, sometimes in an extremely unfortunate way. This is why it's so important to see that there is no dana without insight. That dana is actually an attitudinal commitment to liberate our hearts from all forms of, of clinging, including clinging, no matter how unconsciously, to a somehow diminished sense of being. It is a commitment to inner respect, sense of worthiness, It's also a movement out of the language of I and you, of somehow being more or less worthy, more or less deserving. In in the understanding of dana and in the understanding of liberation, that language actually doesn't make any sense at all. What we are truly more concerned with, actually, is the felt experience, moment to moment, of limitation and of freedom, of fear and of confidence of releasing the painfulness of clinging and grasping, releasing the painfulness of the very limited and and constricted world that that creates, defined by me and mine, and cultivating the heart of unshakable sufficiency and contentment. Now, each of us actually sits beneath our own Bodhi trees. Amen. And we all meet our own demons. And we can very much, like the Buddha did, in all of those moments of doubt, in all of those moments perhaps of self-diminishing, we can do just as the Buddha did, to reach out and to touch the ground and to know within our, our own hearts we have all that we need for awakening and actually that the earth bears witness to that. The earth bears witness to our capacity to live a life guided by freedom, clinging to nothing, moment to moment. In the traditional sense, when dana is spoken about, it is spoken about in in three different ways. One is material dana, offering the material support that is needed to help the welfare and the happiness of all beings. The other way is, is the dana of protection, protecting all living beings from harm, being a friend to those who have no friends. 
Hmm? Being a companion to those who are lonely. Being an ally to those who feel threatened. And the third form of dana is the gift of the dharma. The gift of the path, of embodying the path. When to read you one of the kind of dedications often expresses this. It says, may I be a guardian for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path, a boat, a raft, a bridge for those who wish to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for the weary, a healing medicine for all who are sick, for the boundless multitudes of living beings. May I bring sustenance and awakening, enduring like the earth and the sky until all beings are freed from sorrow and all are awakened. Which really brings... Oh, dear. Are you patient tonight? (laughs) Which really brings me to the second foundation, the second parami, and the way in which dana and integrity are so interwoven. Now, last night I spoke about the five ethical trainings in the beginning of the retreat. You know, on one level these just sound very behavioral, about what we don't do, but also about what we do. On one level, you know, the, the, parent, the, the, the training guidelines, the ethical guidelines we see, is they, they really do our ways of providing a refuge of safety, a refuge of respect for all of us. And yet these ethical guidelines are not just behavioral, they have much more to do with what's going on in our minds. A friend of mine once said, if, 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 the, if ethical guidelines don't make us uncomfortable, we haven't understood them. The ethical guidelines are really there to counter those kind of more, more embedded tendencies of, of craving and ill will, tendencies that can't operate without delusion. But they're also concerned with metta. In fact, the Buddha described integrity as words, acts, and thoughts of kindness. Now, we know we can all go for a week without killing each other. We can all go for a week without getting drunk or ransacking our neighbor's room. You know? but, but there may be plenty of scope for investigating about what's going on in our minds. <laughs> the ways in which ill will and craving can actually arise and be expressed in our thinking. Integrity, you know, behavioral, uh, behavioral trainings, of course, can, can be useful, and they are very useful as a kind of beginning of restraint against some of those tendencies. But integrity goes much further than that. We also have to give up the idea of moral certainties. This is not a pathway of moral certainties. It's not a pathway of right and wrong and good and bad and those who go to heaven and those who go to hell. It's concerned, the investigation of integrity is concerned with dissolving 
the fortress of selfing, the delusional place of I and me, which can occupy such centrality in our acts and our intentions. And I think the commitment to integrity is actually moving into the language of us, widening the circle of our concern, knowing that my happiness and well-being is directly linked to your happiness and well-being. The capacity, the, the sense of freedom or imprisonment I have in my life is actually really interwoven with yours, that my safety and protection is totally interwoven with yours. It's so phenomenal, isn't it, that despite the call of all spiritual traditions over, over centuries for people to live for the contemplative life, to be lived with integrity and compassion, that human beings continue to have so much capacity and to exercise so much capacity to inflict such misery upon themselves, upon others, and upon the planet. And I think in the face of this, it's very easy to feel kind of hopeless or, or helpless or even cynical. And we know we cannot actually change the mind or the heart of another, only our own, but we shouldn't think that doesn't make a difference. We all leave our footprints in this world. And we are asked in this pathway to ask what is guiding the kind of footprint that we leave, care, empathy, compassion, or at times fear and self-protection. That's not, again, something to judge. It is something to be mindful of. Any single moment where we find ourselves moving into, you know, wanting to harm in our speech or our thought, particularly in our thoughts, knowing something else goes on underneath that, you know, that, that, that kind of mind is moving on in, within a climate of heedlessness and, and habitual reactions governing our, our thoughts and our words. It becomes clear to us in our own experience that when kindness and compassion guides our thoughts, words, and actions, the footprint we leave in this life is much lighter and the residues in our hearts are much fewer. We don't hear the echoes of shame and blame and guilt. And actually, sometimes the Buddha described the liberated heart as a heart freed from residues. Integrity, like so much else in this path, really relies upon intention. Whereas so often what we see when there's an absence of in intention, there is impulse. And when there is impulse, sometimes there is a kind of a shortage of integrity. As a Roman philosopher, he once said, we dance through life like puppets on the strings of our impulses. It's a little bit harsh, but there we go. The thing is that integrity is about moving into an intentional life and knowing that every day, you know, we face multiple moments and people and events that we're asked to respond to and we want to do the right thing and we don't always know what the right thing is. This is where we need to live with the ambiguity of ethics 
the moral, the ethical uncertainties that are part of all of our lives. There was a time here we had cockroaches in the kitchen. Not now, please. <laughs> we had cockroaches in the kitchen. Nobody here wanted to kill the cockroaches. We had a commitment to providing safe food for all of you. We installed air conditioning, knowing at the same time the devastation that climate change is wreaking on this planet. At the same time, we know that we used so much electricity running fans through the summer when people were fainting in the hall from the heat. A woman might find herself facing a pregnancy that cannot be born and doesn't want a termination. We may find ourselves in situations where we're asked to speak honestly to someone, also knowing that that may cause pain. These are, part, you know, these are parts of our lives. Ethical uncertainty is part of our life. Moral certainty, I think, is for the fearful. I think it takes a great deal of courage to embrace ethical uncertainty because that's where we ask questions and we don't know always what is the right thing to do. Huh? And maybe that's not even the right question to ask. But if there is enough intentionality present in our life, we might ask, what is the most compassionate thing to do? Knowing that that's never the end of the story, you know, that moral uncertainties will continue, new challenges will be faced, more healing will be asked for, more things will be asked to let go of. But this is the life we live. We don't live a life of certainties. But we can live a life of compassion. We can take upon ourselves that responsibility to ask, what is the most compassionate way to be in this, in this world? And then we will perhaps actually see that, that that is actually the path. That is the path. The Buddha put it very simply that integrity is the ground for all harmonious relationships, communities, societies, including with ourselves. That without integrity, our world does actually look a lot like it does right now, riven by greed and by hatred, and by fear and by anxiety. All that we can actually do is practice where we are, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with those we love, our relationship with those we struggle with, and the myriad of beings we don't know. And it takes such courage to commit ourselves to protecting the welfare of all. The commitment to, to generosity, to truthfulness, to relationships of love. It takes courage to say no to the causes of suffering. Sometimes it takes courage to be truthful when it's not popular. Where would we be without those women who had the courage to speak what, is, what was truthful, even though it was not popular? It takes courage to be generous without fear. Again, from the Dhammapada, it says, better than a thousand careless word is one single word that brings peace. Better than a hundred years lived in heedlessness without contemplation is one single day lived in wisdom and deep contemplation.
Better than a hundred years lived in confusion is a single day lived with courage and wise intention. Intention clearly alone is not enough. We all know that. Intention is something that so needs to be translated into our words, our acts, our choices. And also, intention needs to be linked with a very deep awareness of the consequences and the impact of our words and acts of choices and choices. And our intentions in this life and in our days here will be buffeted by many things, by waves of doubt, waves of impulse, waves of uncertainty, waves of ambivalence. How many times we will see that in the day that you start a walking period or a sitting period with the intention to be awake and to be present and find it getting so buffeted by so many waves of impulse. This is a training. It's a training. It's why we say, you know, we renew intention a thousand times in a single sitting. Learning to be undeterred. Learning that we can bend without being broken. Integrity deeply is this commitment to the well-being and the happiness and the freedom of all. This is compassion. Dana, freely giving, inclines our heart towards a noble and ethical way of life. A life deeply aligned with the way things actually are. A life rooted in understanding what causes suffering and estrangement. What brings it to an end? And the path to walk. And sometimes I think the paramis and the perfections can sound like impossible attainments. And, you know, that's an option. We can make our home in a sense of impossibility. Or we can make our home really moment to moment in that commitment to protecting all beings from harm, including ourselves. Learning to cultivate the non-clinging mind. Learning to cultivate kindness, compassion, moment to moment. Sounds like a big ask. But the, the ask, the size of the ask, is only ever equal to the size of the moment. Because that's the only one we can live. We are learning in ourselves about how to move from contractedness, from self-cherishing to inclusivity, to a sense of interdependence and connectedness, not blaming or shaming around the moments of ill will or craving or self-protection that arise. Where would we practice without these? Where would be our encouragement without these? But we learn to embrace them in a very different way. Okay, I just want to end by reading through this formula once more. One longing to live a noble life and liberation of the heart commits themselves to the welfare of all living beings not tolerating the suffering of any living being, dedicated to the enduring happiness of all and holding all beings equally. They are generous to all so that they may be happy, 
not considering whether they are worthy or not. In a commitment to love and non-harming, they practice integrity. In order to bring integrity to perfection, they train themselves in renunciation. In order to understand what is beneficial and what is harmful, they cultivate wisdom. For the sake of the welfare and happiness of all, they constantly exert energy. Though heroic in their energy, they are nevertheless full of forbearance for the manifold failings of beings. They are truthful. Once they have promised to give or do something, they uphold their commitments with unshakable resolution. They work for the welfare and happiness of all. With unshakable kindness, they are helpful to all. Pervaded with equanimity, they do not expect anything in return, but live with an unshakable freedom beyond the reach of all conditions. We just take a moment quietly together. May all beings be safe and protected. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live with compassion. Thank you for your attention. Um, Just a little reminder for those of you who don't frequent the notice board um, that the clocks do change tonight, okay? So even now, while it's in your mind, you no, don't do it now. You'll never come to the next sitting. (laughs) At the end of the next sitting, please move your... Watch one hour forward. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.